The Athletic. Macintosh and welcome back to the Football Manager Show sponsored by LiveScore. COVID free since uh, January 30th. Yes, uh, sorry about last week. The plague decided to do a second lap of my lungs, but as you can hear, I'm mostly okay again. And just in time because we've got a monster show for you. What's the reality behind the transfer window? We've got Britain's foremost transfer expert, the brilliant David Ornstein, on the show to see what we can learn from the real thing. And remember how Football Manager announced the future integration of the women's game? We're talking to Sports Interactive's head of women's football research, Tina Keach, to find out the latest. And in live scores more than a score, we're chatting to James Horncastle about managing in Italy. So, let's get started. First, though, um, a bit of housekeeping. You may recall that we set ourselves a let's fix Manchester UFC like a young Alex Ferguson challenge. And we had a lovely chat with Andy Mitten. Uh, We ran into a number of issues. Firstly, as you may already have noticed, Manchester UFC aren't really that broken on FM22. You know, when someone as catastrophically bad as me wins 19 out of 19 league games, you know there's a problem. And it, it's not just me. Uh, Dylan Dezeu wrote in. Uh, he won the treble in his first season doing this. Fundamentally, that team, in terms of the talent available, it's just not broken. So the idea of the feature was that we would gradually improve over three to five seasons, you know, not just win everything with the existing squad. And, of course, there are now aspects of the Man UFC story that are just no longer appropriate to include in what was going to be a light-hearted sort of account. So we've canned the whole feature. But look, that does leave a gap. We're still doing the Newcastle Challenge. That's going nowhere in so many ways. Uh, that's our in-depth week-by-week thing. It'd be really nice to get another story going. Something with that wide angle, you know, one episode every half season, that sort of thing. So what do we choose? Well, we need your help. If you go onto Twitter, you'll find me on Ian underscore games. There's a Twitter poll there and you can help us decide. We've we've got your four basic food groups of football manager there. There's the potential of Chelmsford, the oil tanker of Everton, the basket case of Derby and and what we're calling the Neo McLean challenge of turning Dundee United into a European force. So if you've got time, go over there, give us your vote. We'll announce the winner on Friday and um, I don't want to influence this too much, but... I honestly don't think I can handle Everton again. David Ornstein, welcome to the show. Hi, Ian. You okay? I'm I'm very good. I'm, good. I'm much better than I sound. But what about <laughs> you? A busy transfer window? Yes, it was busy. It was one of the busiest I can remember. Of course, January is condensed compared to the summer. Then you have new kids on the block in Newcastle United, others trying to do lots, scrambles at the end, the Aubameyang situation. And yeah, it was frantic. It was hectic. I don't remember so many, not sleepless nights, but so little sleep over a transfer window. There were so many stories, rumours to chase, leads to follow up that this one left me absolutely knackered, honestly, more than any I can remember. 
And when I fin- finally got some rest uh, last night as we record this. <laughs> it is amazing, actually. We, we were both in the athletic office in the last transfer window. And it's a pleasure mm-hmm. to see you work because you're essentially a kind of mobile one-man telephone exchange. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit... What's the word? Um, it's not... There's no manual. <laughs> There's no set way to do it. Of course, you work within restrictions and you corroborate all your information you follow due process you're making calls you're firing off texts you're cross-referencing stuff you're jumping between contacts different stories uh, making sure you're multiply sourcing everything and making sure that those multiple sources are independent of each other and they're not just repeating the same thing and if they are you just need to find um either someone else to make sure that what those guys are saying is correct or you make your own judgment on what you've got in front of you you're charging your phone up because it's running out of juice (laughs) you're getting into an area where you might not be overheard within offices or cafes train stations as my deadline day pretty much started or no that was deadline day minus one i came down from where i live in the northwest to euston and things were starting to kick off on donny van der beek choosing to join everton over crystal palace so i got the info as i got into euston on sunday morning and i just found myself a seat away from people and just worked there for about three hours until I realized my phone was about to run out of juice and the power block was empty and so got myself to the hotel that I was meant to be in carried on there and it just powered on through um, <laughs> staying up very very late and then realizing deadline day hasn't even started <laughs> <laughs> it's it's amazing isn't it because there's there's so many moving parts you don't have to go back that far sort of 15 20 years and you you're not dealing with as many foreign transfers you're not dealing with the you know the layers of agent because you know it used to be generally you'd have one agent covering a handful of players now you're dealing with agencies it's changed a lot in the in the last like, 10 to 15 years hasn't it yeah so I really got going on the transfer market. My first job was at The Guardian as a trainee, and that was in 2006 for a year. So the market was window as we know it now. What, three, four years old? Because it was around 2002, 2003 that it took its current form. I must have done sort of summer and January 30 plus windows, maybe 34, 35, 36. And so, yeah, in the mid-2000s, I think it was just, well, it largely depends on who your contacts are, but not so many deals were done, and it was far less high profile. We didn't really have social media then. So it was very much just sort of calling people, following bits up, and if you get a story, great. It was ringing the press offices. I, I didn't have great contacts but back in those days. You sort of build them up bit by bit. I don't remember the stories being massive. And then the industry, and I mean... The transfer market, when I say industry, sort of just grew and took off exponentially. And there was a real insatiable appetite building in the public. I remember doing a story on Yanum Via when he was in France. I think he was at Rennes and he was the talk of the town for a few days in a window. And, and people asking me, what's going on with them Via to Arsenal? And it's amazing. Of course, one of the reasons that this has been so popular is... The, the game football manager because mm. you know you, you talk about Yamavia there and he's he's someone who was in lots of people's <laughs> football manager teams before he um, before he started appearing in, in the newspapers and I guess one of the biggest lures with the game 
is that you get full control over your transfers as a manager mm-hmm. if you want it. You know, you you can head up your scouting department, you can do the haggling, you can work out the contracts, um, which, which is kind of an old school way of doing things. Do, does that sort of power exist in the hands of any one manager now? No, it's very rare. Um, virtually non-existent. I mean, you had the Fergusons, the Wengers, Mourinho for a period who were so powerful within their organization and their organization was smaller their club was not as vast employed fewer people than they do now and it seemed a far more simple process then now the manager is much more the head coach and although that's you know changing at some places actually at Arsenal under Arteta it's gone more the other way back towards the Wenger sort of model because Arteta moved from head coach to manager they got rid of some people around the football setup and it's kind of him making the decisions and transfer of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang or his cancellation of his contract it all had to be run through Mikel Arteta he was the key decision maker on a lot of these things and you know we're seeing that elsewhere I think um, Thomas Tuchel has got some big power at Chelsea not quite the traditional level. You've got the director, Marina Granovskaya, who's really pulling the strings around recruitment, but he has a big say compared to previous Chelsea managers. You've got Jurgen Klopp, massive part of the process at Liverpool in all realms, but not in the Ferguson Wenger way. You know, they've got they've had Michael Edwards there, Mike Gordon on behalf of the owners is hugely powerful. It's not like football manager. It's a far more collegiate approach now and I guess that makes the football manager role all the more exciting. The logical conclusion is that, you, you know, through, through theories like the, the wisdom of crowds and getting big groups of people to cover more ground, it should work better, shouldn't it, with a, a clear structure of recruitment. But there's a lot of clubs who get this very badly wrong, aren't there? What are some of the most common mistakes you see in recruitment? Yeah, I think the intentions are normally right. And they have to be, you know, these are multi-million and in some case billion pound clubs in a multi-billion pound industry, which isn't really regulated. And so that gives license for mistakes to be made and no repercussions to come of it. But more and more clubs are getting their houses in order and that's making the process better, um, more impressive, more economical. Okay, they're spending vast amounts of money, but these are in the main really well thought through decisions and you can't control the factors on a match day. But the likes of Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester City running really slick operations where I think they get more of these recruitment decisions right than wrong. They've got very, very clear lines of authority, communication that's serving them well. On the flip side, you've got clubs who, there's all manner of uh, factors here, who don't have quite the clarity in communication, in decision-making power, owners in different continents. You know, in this transfer deadline day, personnel in different continents with a number of the clubs as the deadline day hits, being on warm weather training camps. And that creates problems. Still, many clubs don't plan as well as they should coming into the window. And I know it's not a fine science and easy, but many clubs that or people that I speak to within clubs coming into January had no real plan. They were going to react to situations 
probably not do much because it's a bad market and we don't have much money and then find themselves scrambling around at the end. Of course, those that do have their house in order, they shouldn't really need January. It's more of an emergency or opportunistic market as Liverpool showed with Luis Diaz. Other mistakes are relying too much on outside influences, agents and panicking, reacting too much to the pressure of their fan base. Is that often where the trouble starts? We have agents in the boardroom. If you're a supporter, it's always the kind of thing that fills you with fear. Is that where the the sort of logical thinking starts to fall away? Yeah, the agents is one of the most divisive talking points within football because and, and the market in particular because there are some really good agents and make no mistake about it clubs rely on them heavily you know they don't slag them off when they need them and they often need them to help broker like an estate agent to drive prices down because they may have a better relationship with the club that this that you want to buy from or sell to than you do and they're at times, and especially the good ones, worth their weight in gold because they can facilitate things that you want to do and grease the wheels in a way that you can't. But they're also not good agents and it's something FIFA are said to be working hard to try and improve and clean up. But if those bad agents have too much influence on players, on managers, on coaches, on directors and get even their tentacles in towards the boardroom and start making uh, advances. I wouldn't say decisions because that really should rest with the executives themselves, but applying pressure that may have an ulterior motive, huge conflicts of interests. There are very few agents that will have the club's best interests at heart. Ultimately, it's probably best not to not to mix it too much. I mean, don't forget that a lot of these relationships go way back and agents may have helped clubs in a way that some of us don't even think about. And it shouldn't be the case, but returning of favours and needing them in times of crisis to, to help you do things, it's it's a bit of a wild west, to be honest. And, um, and that's why efforts are being made to bring back in regulation. The industry was deregulated in 2004. 15 I think and now FIFA are trying to sh- tighten it up with an exam and with caps on uh, commissions and things like that but they will always exist because there is a need for help. <laughs> if the British public ever really understood how the sausage was made my word my word the fallout <laughs> but to, to wrap up if, if you were running a football club which way would you go would you go for the old-fashioned kind of autocracy or, or would you what would be your clearly defined process of recruitment? No, I like the modern way because it allows you to bring in best in class operators in whatever discipline they work in. And there are so many of them really fantastic, whether they're well educated or whether they've just got great nous and experience, whether they've got really niche skills when it comes to data, analytics, sports science, medicine, even club liaison officers who help the players settle in, specialists in a certain type of recruitment, youth recruitment, uh, really good executives who can negotiate contracts, that can specialise in recovery. I I think there are so many areas that you can strive for perfection where marginal gains lead to a fragmentation of responsibilities and they all come together to create the best possible output and 
I think that is the best way. But when you do that, as the people at the top of the tree, the owners, the chief executive, the chairman, the board, you do have to delegate proper power. Otherwise, those people are redundant. They're doing pointless jobs because at the end, you're just going to overrule them. And you might say, yeah, we took all their evidence on board and we factored it into our decision-making process. But did you really? And I think too many within the game are still holding on to the fact that rightly it is their money it is they are the owner they it ultimately falls on their shoulders but appreciate when you're an owner of that level of wealth that there might be better people to do certain jobs and they need to be given the license to do them i would do it in a more collegiate way where it is really important to hire the best in class to delegate to them to trust in them and to back them and to understand that it can go wrong it will hopefully go right but to have it all on your shoulders in this day and age when your rivals are doing it differently and succeeding with it and these clubs have grown so big it's just not practical to go old school and you are probably limiting yourself and your potential by doing it that way when there are so many people that can come in help you to become the best and probably better than you can do on your own well that's certainly what i could do with with pretty much every game of football manager i've started in the last 10 years <laughs> um, david Ornstein, thank you so very much for joining us i take it you're going back into standby mode for about three weeks now and then we'll draw you out ahead of the next one well ideally until the summer but unfortunately it's probably going to last a matter of days and then i'll be back on the horse <laughs> so to speak well, thank you so much for joining us. Cheers, Ian. Anytime. It's more than a score. It's live score. So, what's all this about then? Well, with live score, which I'm certain you've all downloaded for free from the App Store or Google Play, you get the latest action, stats and analysis from around the world. Because we know with football... It goes beyond scores. It's the stories from the pitch and the stands. Players and fans all spinning their own strands of the mighty football web that links us all together. And there's no better way to twang that web than by playing Football Manager. So yeah, essentially, it's a guide to exciting new saves. And where's more exciting than Italy, James Horncastle? Hello, Macca. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, um, particularly to indulge uh, a passion and a fantasy, which would be to to invest, take over, and maybe even coach a team in Italy. Well, and this is something you have no small amount of experience with, because uh, you were a player of the the classic CM Italia, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, I would say that was as influential as watching Football Italia on on Channel Four on a Saturday and Sunday. I, I think if I had not passed by a video game shop and bought that when you had to buy them and you could only buy specific leagues it was one league and that was it that you had to focus on um i probably wouldn't be where i am now it's important to mention to any younger listeners like what italian football meant in the early 90s because you through the 80s there wasn't really much football on telly anyway you 
just about got one game a week on ITV. And then all the rights suddenly vanished off to Sky Sports. And there's Channel 4, not not just with, you know, a game on a Sunday that you can watch on terrestrial television, but but with, of course, uh, your friend of mine, James Richardson, with the big show, you know, with him sitting out with little cups of coffee and pink newspapers. And it, it became an outlet for anyone who didn't have Sky. And the original championship manager, which was just beginning to hit its stride at this point, I think initially you could only get the Italian version mail order because they didn't think it would sell. And they soon changed their minds about that because uh, <laughs> suddenly, yeah, in Software Plus and Chelmsford, you're able to pick up for £17.99 Serie A and Serie B. And it was, I mean, it's another world, isn't it? I mean, it was brilliant. I didn't play the Premier League equivalent, so I don't know whether you had as much money to play with as you did when you were an Inter or a Milan. Certainly didn't have the talent you could find uh, in in Serie A at that time. Um, so I must have played with pretty much all the big Serie A teams. I think I tried to get some of the Serie A B teams up and winning Champions League. And then yeah, I think yeah, even when that came out, sort of early mid nineties, I was I played it so much I was probably up to the present day. <laughs> It was so addictive, but it's, it's a bit, little bit like with everything. Like, I think you learn so much about football playing, playing this game, certainly outside of, of the league and becoming aware of, of, of what players are good. You know, the wonder kid cult that, uh, that you find on forums and that sort of thing. It's just, uh, it was a great exercise in learning about the game, really. Oh, completely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think you can see from the, the imagination and the breadth of subject matter that you get from young writers now, which you never got 20 years ago, kind of pays testament to that. But listen, if, if you were playing this version of the game, and I know you're, you're <laughs> far too busy, what Italian team would, would stand out as the, the most fun? Well, I, I think there are a few, and we'll probably settle on one at the end. But over the last few years, you've seen all these kind of foreign investor groups come in and, and they tend to buy not just history and tradition, but destination clubs. And so a lot of them are taken now. Um, you know, so for example, uh, Venezia uh, are in US hands, uh, Fiorentina in US hands, uh, Roma, uh, the same. So what do you do? Do you go for a, a potential giant of the South? Do you go for a Bari, you know, in terms of Ooh. Uh, that huge stadium that they have got there, uh, the San Nicola, um, and you know, uh, memories and nostalgia uh, linked to you know, Italian '90, that third place playoff that England played there against Italy. So that was in my mind. As were Lecce, their, their rivals in a, in Puglia. I mean, Lecce has become a destination for for lots of uh, of tourists, uh, as has that region, um, Puglia, with people that are going to Ostuni and, and Albarello and places like that. For the same reason, I think Palermo is another great option. With a team of, uh, of, of the kind of 2000s, I would say, in terms of incredible recruitment, signing the players like uh, Cavani, when nobody had ever heard of them, Javier Pastore, Josip Ilicic, Simon Kier, yeah, the list goes on. Had a bonkers owner who passed away um, this week, um, who was famous for sacking managers, um, sometimes you know five or six a season. Sicily has got a lot to recommend itself. Pink shirts as well. I mean, yeah, that really stands out still in in, in world football. I think a lot of people wanted wanted to get their hands on one of those. Great kind of cuisine in Sicily as well. But the the team I'm going to settle on. 
is actually Sampdoria, Ian. That's the team that, that oh, I would... Oh, now we're talking. That's the one that I would take over. Why Sampdoria? So Samp have uh, the best shirt in, in football. Agreed. Even though their they're rivals, Genoa and haters, say it's more like a cycling jersey and call them the, the cyclists, um, you know, rather <laughs> than the, uh, the Blue Cerchiati. Great club emblem with the uh, Bacicca, which is the pipe-smoking fisherman from the port town of Genoa. I think there's just a lot of iconography with, with, with Samp. That is just fantastic. They've even produced these kind of glorious pashminas for managers like Roberto Mancini to wear instead of those kind of tightly knotted, chunky knit scarves. So I, I think there's that. And, you know, Samp uh, are up for sale at the moment. We've seen a lot of kind of clubs been taken over, like their, their cousins, as they're called in Italy, Genoa. Um, who are the oldest club in Italy. So it'd be good to kind of balance that out and, and make them a, a force again. Of course, so many people remember fondly them winning the league title, their only league title in 1991 with uh, Mancini, Viali, you know, going to European finals, you know, the, the, the European Cup in 1992, losing to Barcelona of, uh, of Johan Cruyff, the dream team, and, and Ronald Koeman. I just think there's a lot to do with Samp, really. That sounds perfect. And of course, it's a, a bitter rivalry rivalry with uh, Genoa, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a game that is often what determines whether a season has been a success or not for these clubs. Because even though Genoa have won the league nine times, um, the last time was in the 1920s, um, Samp have only won it once and were a fusion of club. And they've been around since the... Of the 1950s, but the atmosphere at this game, when you go to the Luigi Ferraris, which is you know a very English-style stadium for Italy, you know a lot of stadiums in in Serie A and Serie B have running tracks around them. This one doesn't. The the stands are like chocolate boxes, and they're they're right over the the, the action of the pitch. They don't have uh, curva, uh, which is the the bend, the end where the 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 ultras sit. This is called the gradinata which is like the steps. And so it's, again, steep, uh, overlooking the goals. And uh, the choreographies and the atmosphere uh, for the uh, the Lighthouse Derby, as it's called, the Derby de la Lanterna, is just fantastic. It feels English, but at the same time, South American as well. So there'd be a lot of media scrutiny on the week before that game on Football Manager. I'd have to pick my answers to, to local journalists, you know, Il Secolo, the local paper there. I'd have to be very careful about what I said and just strike the right tone because, you know, for, for fans of Samp, at this moment in time when the two clubs are in a kind of relegation battle, you know, you don't want to lose a derby that, you know, then could be lauded over you as, yes, we were the team that relegated Samp or Genoa. So you take over Sampdoria. There's a few familiar faces in the squad, aren't there? Who are the players who stand out right now? Well, it's a very unglamorous Samp side. So I think that's that's one of the reasons why, if I, if I were to come in, I would hope that this consortium from the US, which had Gianluca Viali, club legend, as a front man, uh, would come in and basically say, yes, James, you're our manager and we're going to give you more money. But at the moment, they've got Fabio Quagliarella, who okay, is in the twilight of his career, is a scorer of great goals. They've got another kind of journeyman striker who was a late bloomer in Chicho Caputo, um, and he brews his own beer. He's from he's from the south. He's from a place called Altamura in um, near near Bari, and he makes uh, makes beer out of bread. He's well worth going out for a drink with. 
and then you've got kind of the the remnants of Samhampton, as it was called, um, <laughs> when when Sam bought Maya Yoshida um, from Southampton, Manola Gabbiadini. Sadly, Gaston Ramirez has has moved on, but yeah, they've 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 got some interesting young players. I say young, Morton Torsby, who's like this giant. I wouldn't say Viking, um, but he's yeah he's from Norway. He's he's very tall. Um, and he's kind of used as a, oh, let's just pump the ball up to Torsby, even though he's a midfield player. That, that way we'll beat, beat the press. He's a real handful from set pieces. That's it. But, you know, I mean, I would probably go back to what served Samp so well in the 1980s, which was to try and find the absolute best young Italian talents and bring them to the club so we're talking you know the likes of, of, of Mancini who was signed as a teenager from Bologna uh, obviously Viali who I've mentioned I try and and bring back the days of the Sampdoro the golden Samp nice and and worth mentioning as well that there's a player in there who you will instantly think is a new gen but is real because he was in my FM 17 Leeds team Ronaldo Vieira yes um, whose brother was also in the Leeds team and is called is it Romario Vieira? it is Romario yes Ronaldo's back. I think he's played 17 minutes so far this season. He had a good year, actually, under the new old Samp manager because Marco Giampaolo, who left to take the Milan job and was sacked a few months later, is now back at the club. And uh, he played uh, Ronaldo a lot. The other player to look out for is Mikel Damsgaard, um, who's currently recovering from a bad injury. But Damsgaard was one of the stars of Denmark's run to the semi-final of the Euro, scored an absolute worldy goal in that tournament. So I would probably look to get him scoring goals from the left or, or get him in, in, in through the middle off one of the strikers because he's probably the biggest young talent that Samp have got at the moment. Okay, well, if that hasn't got you visibly twitching to start up a Sampdoria save, then I believe, sir, that you are dead. James Horncastle, thank you so much for joining us. That was absolutely amazing. Pleasure. That was It's More Than a Score with Live Score. You can get real-time updates and results, match highlights and breaking news from around the football world on the Live Score app. And it's completely free. Just search for it on the App Store or Google Play now. Now then, this is a podcast for smart people. You're playing football manager because you've got a great big brain and an attention span like the Golden Gate Bridge. So you need the athletic in your life. No clickbait, no 600 word, this is what I think columns conjured up in the shower and smashed out inside 40 minutes. It's big journalism for big brains. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get a very special deal on a subscription. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash fmpod. That's theathletic.com forward slash fmpod. Find out how much you can save. Now, you might remember back in July of 2021, Football Manager announced that they would be introducing the women's game into future versions of, of Football Manager. You'll also, if you're a subscriber to The Athletic, you may have seen my interview of Emma Hayes about the, the very same thing. But what's happening now? Where's the process got to? I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Sports Interactive's Head of Women's Football Research, Tina Keach. 
Hello, Tina. Hello, thank you for having me. I mean, first of all, it, it is traditional for me to ask all SI Games staff, what exactly do you do all day? If I'm honest, I read about football, talk about football and watch football <laughs> the majority of the time. It <laughs> <That> sounds perfect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is the there is the obvious business side of it, the admin side that I do on a daily basis as well. But the vast majority is all about football and how we can implement women's football into the game. This is because you're basically just having to build an entire database from the ground up, isn't it? Yes, it's been challenging. <laughs> Slightly overwhelming at, at times as well. But um, yeah, I think at the moment my days are spent looking for researchers. So I'm interviewing people. Well, I say interview and I literally just sit there and chat about football and have a good old chinwag about what's going on in football, really. And yeah, reading CVs and just networking and trying to make contacts. There was a fair bit of controversy over FIFA's awards recently and some people have interpreted that uh, quite understandably as the women's game not necessarily getting the same attention that the men's game get. So this, I'm imagining, is a massive step in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, the FIFA Awards, uh, I, I do love Twitter sometimes for this reason, just for the comments. But um, yeah, the FIFA Awards was, it was a bit frustrating, I think, just because we've seen such great strides in the last year. And I think the FIFA Awards was just a knock on the door to be like, OK, actually, we've still got lots of work to do. But Women's Football and Football Manager is a massive stride for the game. It's all about visibility, getting players, teams, leagues out there so everyone can watch it, so people can easily watch it and to be a bit more well-informed about the game and the players. It's a really big stride in the right direction. So what sort of scale are we talking about here? I mean, how many how many nations and how many leagues are being put together? We haven't actually decided on a definite number. We've talked about roughly 10 to 15 leagues to initially go into the game. And so we're looking at, obviously, the, the major leagues in women's football to go in first. And then as time goes on, I would love, in an ideal world, to put as many leagues into the game as possible. And that's not just worldwide, that's also going down into the lower leagues. So I think for for England, as that's my expert place, I'd love to go down as low as possible. And hopefully, you know, initially we can go down to the National Premier League for South and North. Because, you know, what I love about Football Manager is you find these hidden gems and people start talking about these lower league players or these youngsters that have come in. And it's exactly the same in women's football. It's just, it's not as visible. And hopefully... The game will bring women's football and these hidden gems into the limelight. It must be really challenging because I think with the men's game, if you were going to try and do this now with the men's game, you'd be able to look at all sorts of other bits of media, other games, databases, all kinds of information would be available for you to grade the players. But this is sort of uncharted territory at some levels, isn't it? Yeah, it's... it's exciting. It's I am so excited about it because there aren't many databases out there and we're creating one of a kind. But yeah, the chal- it is so challenging. And that's why, you know, networking, talking to different people, different organisations and collaborating with everyone is what's really needed to make this database as good as it possibly can. 
but you know I, I I always say it that there's data out there for women's football I mean it's not very good it's not accurate <laughs> and even when it is they say it's accurate I accurate I'm still like mm, is it though I'm not sure <laughs> so, have you had those moments where you've you've been watching a player who isn't supposed to be quick and they're running yeah. gazelle like down the left wing yeah exactly I look at a database and I'm like oh, I think you might be slightly off there or you know, they've got their player history I'm like I'm pretty sure they didn't go there so yeah have you had much help from the the women's football community from the clubs themselves and supporters and things yeah I've had people reach out saying you know really want to help you know a lot of clubs especially in the lower clubs they just they want to be in the game because it will raise their profile which is exactly what they want I've only spoken to one big club who's you know whatever we need I think the initial step is building the base first and that's about getting the researchers in the experts in and so that is the fans that's the journos that's people that work in the clubs you know it might be a performance analyst it might be someone who works in uh, someone else in the backroom staff and it's just it's building those researchers up to then go right okay I trust you, look after this league, this data, I'm going to help you get some contacts, networks, and then we can get everyone in who is willing to help. You know one community that will be very keen to help if uh, Miles' stories are anything to go by, and that's the players themselves. Um, have you have you had them start to get in touch yet? Just, uh, I'm a pace, uh, pace 20, I think. No, not yet. I'm hoping that that's going to happen. I think that'll be, I mean, it, I wish I was playing now because I'd be loving to be in the game. And can you imagine like the jokes that would be in the um, in the changing room? I'd love it but yeah hopefully they do reach out because I absolutely need their help <laughs> well I sincerely hope they do but it's it's not just a database this was the thing that I took from the the conversation I had with Emma Hayes and, and Miles Jacobson last summer they said it's not just a case of changing all the names and changing the pixels there are going to be inherent differences between the men's game and the women's game they talked about things like different recovery rates for injuries or even the impact of the menstrual cycle so how on earth does that get put together <laughs> yeah I think you know football managers known for its realism and that's what everyone loves but also making it fun as well we haven't made any decisions on what's going into the game still you know trying testing working things out but um yeah we will have to adjust things slightly like you said it is slightly different we're gonna have to use the research that's out there to make sure the game is realistic but ultimately it does have to be fun as well now we we haven't got a, a release date for obvious reasons you know so many moving parts and uh, and everything but um but it's going to be pretty exciting isn't it i'd imagine the clamor is sort of building up already yeah there's just such excitement you know we we meet regularly in the company and um, there's always a little update and there's a little bit of excitement. There's lots of people that are reaching out like, you know, is it coming out? Is it coming out? I'm like, okay, we need to be able to walk before we can sprint to that finish line. <laughs> there is so much to do. But yeah, every little 
brick that's put in it's just that little bit of excitement that builds on so if anyone's listening to this and they are you know supporters of a club or, or even better you know work with a club and they want to get in touch and help you out where will they find you yes absolutely on twitter my name tina keach it's really easy and yeah please reach out this is exactly you know this sort of platform like the athletic to get out to people who work for a club or who are absolute fans of clubs as well please reach out because I need your help and that's worldwide as well if we don't put your league in in the initial release I want it to go in at some point so please please yeah I need your help to build what is hopefully going to be one of the best databases there you go listeners you know what to do contact Tina Keach Tina thanks so much for coming on the show we're going to come back and talk to you again a little bit further down the line and get more updates yes absolutely look forward to it and yeah thank you is esports overtaking introducing a brand new documentary from BT Sport where esports may have once lived in the shadow of traditional sports it has now grown into a full industry in its own right. Because racing is great, yeah. you know, it's exciting, it's it's close quartered. Real life costs so much money, it can find talent through esports, that's something quite, uh, quite big. Play with Marcus a little bit, Luke Shaw is very good. Football and, and esports fit hand in hand. Ziggy goes defensive, they're going to be so close as they cross the line, but BMW are your champions. Watch the documentary from Tuesday the 8th of February, only. BT Sport. It's time for your letters. You know how to get them in. It's imacintosh at theathletic.com if you want to email, or you can find me on Twitter, Ian underscore games. Uh, with us to provide a normal sounding voice, producer Steve. Hello, hello. Um, how are you, mate? You okay? I'm all right. I'm all right. Nothing that absolutely gallons of. Um, tea can't fix good and also obviously plenty of time to do things like read your favorite books and play a certain type of video game of course actually the, the thing i found most disappointingly was i couldn't really play too many video games because the screen early stages of covid <sighs> particularly your head is killing you it's all audio books at the start but yeah i was i was smashing through stuff you ever read phil collins autobiography i have not no i have not is that what I've got a great story of making a drum for Phil Collins once out of a cardboard <laughs> printer box during my um, Radio 2 days because inexplicably he came to do a live set and the people with him didn't realise that Phil Collins might need a drum. I mean, Phil, that Phil Collins is defined by drums. <laughs> His whole life is drums. I'm surprised he doesn't carry them around with him. Quite. Yeah, Banana Rama's autobiography. Wow. Yeah, I don't know why. I must have bought it at some point, possibly towards the end of an evening. But uh, but yeah, don't ask me why my, my go-to place of COVID was reading autobiographies of 80s pop stars. But um, everyone needs a safe space. We, we cope with it in our own way. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and to be honest, after a few days, it starts to get a bit better. And I was even able to get a lovely long session of Civilization VI with Alex Stewart as well. So there, nice. there are benefits to all this. Just clocking up his numbers on that game even more. Yes, I think he's through the thousand-hour mark. mark oh, my God. my God. What have we got in the mailbag? It should be said that this is a kind of edited version of the, the mailbag. There were loads and loads of letters, um, but uh, we will get to them next week. 
Absolutely, yes. And the first in this smaller version this week is from Kieran Williams. And Kieran says, I'm managing Borussia Dortmund and it's going well. One of the highlights has been Umandi Collins, a one and a half star rated youngster who, when the game starts, is in my under-19s. However, due to an injury crisis, I drafted him up and he's been quite brilliant. He consistently ranks above average, usually seven plus in games, despite being so lowly rated. So first of all, how is this so? Should I just stick with playing him as he's doing so well, or will it blow up in my face? Um, so first of all, the, the rankings thing is, is something that I find fascinating. It's basically what whoever is ranking him thinks. They might not necessarily be right, and particularly with Wonder Kids, I've seen rankings move up very, very quickly in the past. Um, because once they start playing for the first team, their attributes rise dramatically, or, or at least you, you would hope so. Um, assuming they're playing well. So you can actually put one-star players in and see them just hit their level straight away. It is quite rare, I mean, even with the ill-fated Manchester UFC challenge, I was tossing youngsters in and they were very, very nervous and missing shots. Uh, Joe Hugill came on, looked terrified and missed open goals and things like that. But if you are lucky enough to get someone who just, well, essentially Wayne Rooney's it, just drops in at that age and... Uh, and, and hits the ground running, then that's wonderful. There's also a little bit of the eye test, isn't there, with, with young players. If you're sort of watching them, you throw them in, and you go, well, actually, they're doing what I want this player to do in that position. They're doing it well. Exactly. Like, I know the stars say one thing, but actually... Get stuck in, let them, let them play, let them find their level. Exactly. Right, who have we got next? Next up is John Beatty. John says, in the real world, left-footed centre-backs seem to be wanted by all clubs in the transfer window. But how much does it make a difference in football manager? I needed a new left-sided centre-back, but I'm wondering whether it won't make too much difference just to throw in a right-footer. So what are we thinking? So you can throw in a right-footer. And in my experience, in terms of what they do defensively, assuming they're not absolutely terrible on their left foot, it's generally all right. You'd rather have a left-footed player, but a right-footed player can do it. Where you find the difference is when you try and play the ball um, out and, and restart your attack, particularly if you've got ball-playing centre-backs or if you're playing sort of steady passing movements. Because this game, more than any other, really has an emphasis on on the kind of the body shape of the players, which way they're facing, the passing options that they have. They're all a lot more twisty this time round. So there's a real advantage if you're trying to play out from the back to having a left-footed, left-sided centre-back. Otherwise, you know, obviously they have uh, fewer immediate options by which to pass. So well worth keeping an eye on. But obviously, you know, if you're playing long ball and you've got a no-nonsense centre-back, probably not that much difference. Is there a point as well, like if in your squad you've got your two best centre-backs are right-footed? What's the sort of difference you reckon raising-wise between, well, this one's like an extra star better than my left-footed centre-back, even though they're in the wrong position? Is there, What's the sort of trade-off, do you think? Like I say, it's, it's about the style of football you play. In, in my experience, I, I should stress, <laughs> that it will just limit your options of, of getting the ball back out there. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's no point just sticking someone who's left-footed in but isn't actually very good at defending, which is basically all of my Newcastle centre-backs. <laughs> In my head, I was thinking, don't mention Sven Botman. Don't mention Sven Botman. Oh, man, the guy's just... He, he's not what was described on the tin, I tell you. And it does make you think, it sounds like IRL Newcastle will go for him in the summer, which seems like is a mistake. Could be, could be. Who else have we got? So, Tom Sharp, who has previously written in about uh, inputting work colleagues into his FM saves. Ah, oh, yes. 
Yeah, so Tom writes in to say, your shows and articles have really made a difference. Well, thank you very much, Tom. That's the sort of stuff we do genuinely love to hear, not just to massage our fragile, fragile egos. The tips that Tom has put into place consciously have been position of the week. So that's CJ Rampson giving me the confidence to use an inverted wingback for the first time. What madness is that? Well, the madness is actually seeing it overload the central midfield spots. So go, go back further down the feed. It's in the title of the episode. You scroll down the feed, you'll find CJ Rampson talking about inverted winbacks if you want to join that particular revolution. Second point, Tom says, is your insistence on set-piece gains resulting in star fullback Josh Tymon recording 30 assists Oof. in a season, but by firing in every corner, free kick and throwing at a cluster of unnaturally tall defenders. That's 30 assists from set pieces. Nice, nice. Also, Alex Stewart's data-driven approach making signings count. So Tom is no longer using just player ratings, but also their stats over a number of seasons to avoid signing a flop. The final point for Tom, uh, he says, a distant memory of you struggling to keep Scott Brown on the pitch for Celtic oh, yes. and taking the same lessons to limit the recklessness of one particularly booking-happy centre-back. Yes, beware the aggressive player who dives into tackles and definitely beware making that player a ball-winning midfielder, um, <laughs> thus intensifying their desire to dive into tackles. That can go really, really wrong. Tom, thank you so much for, for that. I mean, this, this show has never been about people who are really, really, really good at Football Manager. There's loads of stuff on YouTube and in brilliant places like FM Scout where you can find out how to absolutely nail the game completely this show has always been about people who are at a normal level or people who are struggling a bit people just trying to understand the game a little bit better so they can they can get a bit more joy out of it so it really means a lot when we get emails like yours position of the week will be coming back very very soon wild horses couldn't stop me from talking about set pieces all the time alex stewart <laughs> will be back we're going to be doing loads more stuff with data as we go forward and if there's anything, if you're listening to this show and you're like, well, this is all well and good, but why haven't you talked about opposition instructions? Drop us a line. Let us know, because this show is, is your show. You're, you're kind of our, our guides here. If we're missing something that you really want to know more about, then let us know. It's imacintosh at theathletic.com or find me on Twitter, Ian underscore games. And that was the Football Manager Show, sponsored by LiveScore. I'm quite surprised the voice held out for all of it, to be honest. Your guests were Tina Keach from Sports Interactive and David Onstein and James Horncastle from The Athletic. Your producer was Steve Hankey and I am Ian McIntosh and I am living in a Petri dish, giving off sparks. The Athletic. <laughs>